Welcome to my podcast, Lest We Forget. It's about those lesser-known heroes and their incredible war stories. My name is Gary. I'm not an academic or have any specialist knowledge. I'm just an enthusiastic reader who wants to share some of what I have read and researched. Stories that got me saying to myself, why haven't I heard this before? Episode 6, HMS Tara and the Steel Chariots. This is a story of the sinking of a Royal Navy auxiliary cruiser, HMS Tara, off the coast of North Africa in 1915. The ordeal of the surviving crew as prisoners, and their subsequent dramatic rescue four months later. Before the Great War, the TSS Hibernia had been a London and Northwestern Railway passenger steamership operating between Holyhead and Ireland. In 1914, it was one of the many merchant ships requisitioned by the Royal Navy and renamed HMS Tara. Tara was to continue to patrol the Irish Sea as an auxiliary cruiser on the lookout for German submarines but only armed with obsolete guns. Now commanded by a Royal Navy officer, Captain Rupert Gwatkin Williams, Tara and her old LNWR crew were sent to the Mediterranean, arriving in October 1915, in order to patrol the coastal waters of Egypt and what is now Libya, with the aim of preventing the smuggling of arms and supplies to Turkish forces and Senussi Arabs. The Turks had persuaded the fanatical Senussi, a Muslim clan based in Libya and Sudan, to attack British-held Egypt via its lightly-held western frontier. A month later, on November 5th, 1915, the Tara was torpedoed by a German submarine, U-35, in the Gulf of Solom. Captain Watkin William later recalled. There had been several SOS calls a hundred miles or so to seaward of us on the preceding day, so we knew that at least one submarine was somewhere about. We were consequently very much on the alert. And then the thing happened. Probably very few of my companions had ever before seen a running torpedo. The white line pointing direct at us like a finger post. The torpedo struck Tara fairly centrally on the starboard side. But the ship continued on a fairly even keel for some distance. Which allowed the time after Guatkin Williams had given the order to abandon ship for three lifeboats to be launched for the 92 surviving crew members. Sadly, 11 of the crew, mostly from the engine room, had died in the explosion. Soon after Tara sank, the German submarine U-35 rose to the surface and took the three lifeboats in tow to the port of Bardia. They didn't know this at the time, but they had been sunk by the most successful submarine commander in history, Lothar von Arno de la Perriere. I know, not exactly a German-sounding name, 
but he was born in Prussia and was of German-French descent. Upon the surviving crew's arrival in port, they were handed over to the Turks as prisoners. The ship's cook, who had died from his wounds in one of the boats, was buried soon after landing. The Turkish officers were very courteous, but it was clear that they would be unable to accommodate the prisoners, as they were short of food themselves, and this area was almost entirely a desert. The Turks handed them over to a local Senussi tribe, who, it later became apparent, were also short of food. After a couple of days sheltering in the rocks on the coast, and only having been given a small quantity of rice, the rescued crew were then marched into the desert by the Senussi guards. Guatkin Williams later recalled, The country was one endless stretch of small round pebbles that ground the soles from our boots and the skin from our feet. We were always hungry, always thirsty, always footsore. The sun at noonday scorched us, the cold of the night chilled us. During this journey, they had been carrying one crew member on a stretcher who had sustained a double leg fracture, and under those conditions, infection had set in. They had no choice but to amputate the leg, so using a pair of old scissors and a last drop of whiskey for his nerves, they managed it, but he didn't survive. They marched on. This march, some days on a handful of rice and a small amount of stale water, lasted for what was described by different members of the crew as between 11 days and 3 weeks. Such was their disorientation. They eventually arrived at some half-ruined Roman wells, known as Bir Hakim, which consisted of several caved-in cisterns below the ground, partially filled with stale rainwater. This place served as a well for passing Arab caravans, but there were no buildings or cultivation, only rocks and an outlook to the vastness of the desert. This was to be the crew's camp for the next three and a half months. Their daily rations of rice and water gradually shrank, so much so that they began to eat snails and the roots of a small plant growing in the rocks. Watkin Williams again recalled. A few days after our arrival at Bir Hakim, an Arab woman came to our camp with some goats and sheep to sell. But our guards either could not or would not buy them for us. That night, however, a wolf killed one of the sheep, and some of the men, out foraging for snails, found and brought in the half-eaten carcass. Neither the wolf himself nor the waiting vultures could have tackled that flesh more voraciously than those half-famished sailors did. At Biahekim there were two functioning wells, but the crew were made to draw water from the well which was also used to water the animals. So as a consequence it was a foul green colour which they boiled to try and make it drinkable. However, dysentery soon developed and spread throughout the camp.
With regards to food, they were occasionally given a goat, which provided a little meat between the 90-odd men, but it was mostly small portions of rice. Their staple source of protein became snails. One of the crew, a quartermaster, became known as the Snail King, owing to his appetite for them. He began to be resented by the rest of the crew and was actually getting fatter on them. At some stage they were provided with some old tents and despite the appalling conditions they were experiencing, they were able to bring a little order into their desperate plight. During these few months of harsh conditions, the officers decided to impose a little to no discipline, allowing the crew to let off steam during arguments, trying to avert the brooding depression that many of the men must have been experiencing. And, being railwaymen, they would argue over many trivial matters, such as the correct times for trains to certain destinations and the cost of tickets. However, the officers did try and keep the crew's minds occupied and held Sunday evening hymns and prayer readings. The men it even took to making yarn from tufts of camel hair and used it to stitch old rags together to make hats or Arab shirts and to darn what remaining clothes they still had. Just before Christmas, the men were given some flour, tea and sugar, having been told that these were the last such delicacies they would be given. They decided to save these for Christmas Day, and this was their menu for the day. Breakfast. Rice boiled with a little salt. Dinner. Two ounces of boiled goat flesh and pudding. Tea. One small pancake with weak tea. Although I have not been able to obtain a recipe for the pudding, it was boiled for five hours in a pair of spare cotton Arab trousers. Despite their Christmas meal, they were soon back on a diet of snails. It was clear that without these, the other rations would not have been enough to sustain them much further. Indeed, two of the crew died in early January due to malnutrition, and another two by early February. It became clear to Guatkin Williams that their only chance of rescue would be to get word to the nearest Allied forces in Egypt, and he decided to attempt a solo escape himself in late February. He began saving half of his rice rations, and as other men in the camp were confided in, they too saved some of theirs. So, equipped with the rice and a goat skin of water, he slipped out on the moonless night of the 20th of February and headed towards what he thought would be the coast near the Egyptian border by remembering the route they had arrived by and using the stars. He continued through the night and rested in a sheltered place the following day, but was already predicting his failure as his water bag was leaking 
and his shoes were rubbing the skins from his toes. He continued that night, but his water and strength had gone, and without realising, had taken shelter in a nomad Arab camp. He tried to persuade them to take him to the coast, but instead they took him to the nearest Turkish post. It was decided that he would be returned to the camp, and an old fanatical Senussi priest arrived to collect him. Guatkin Williams was then marched for the next few days back to the camp, ahead of the priest who was on a camel and driving him using a whip. He had no food or water, and his one clear recollection was of gulping down nearly hatched eggs from a lark's nest. One of the crew had recorded in his diary on the 29th of February the following about the captain's return to camp. A few minutes later there appeared over the brow of a small hill some men and camels, and there, walking apart from the rest, was our brave captain. We were now witness of one of the most degrading and brutal sights it has ever been my lot to see. He was lashed with an elephant thong whip, and the guard punched him violently in the face. Then the women came up and pelted him with the largest stones they could find. Guatkin Williams was put in solitary confinement in a goat pen and continued to be mistreated by the priest and some of the women from the camp until he was allowed to return to the others. Over the next couple of weeks, the crew's situation had become worse. Although they had a ration of a few ounces of goat meat a day, the snails were breeding and became inedible. The rice stocks had exhausted and the men hardly had the strength to search for the roots to eat. They were close to succumbing to starvation. There was little to do other than sit about and brood over the lack of food and they started to avoid each other as a result. Meanwhile, and unknown to the captive crew, the situation on the military front was changing. The Senussi, who had previously taken the Egyptian ports of Solom and Sidi Barani, were being slowly driven back by a western frontier force consisting of four infantry battalions and supporting cavalry and artillery. The Royal Navy had regained control of the Mediterranean coastal area of North Africa and continued to blockade any supplies to the Arabs, which ironically probably was the main cause of the lack of food being supplied to the crew of the Tara. Attacks were made by the outnumbered Western Frontier Force on the Senussi in December and progress was achieved in late January. At the end of February 1916, a Senussi encampment was spotted by an aircraft and at the subsequent Battle of Ajajia, the head of the Senussi forces was captured and they retreated. Over the ensuing weeks, the Senussi were pursued back across the border by British troops including armoured Rolls-Royce cars of the Cheshire Yeomanry under the command of the Duke of Westminster. 
On the 14th of March 1916, these armoured cars had stopped to repair a puncture when they saw a wrecked car. A group of soldiers investigated and found an old letter written by Guatkin Williams detailing the location of the prisoners. In fact, Guatkin Williams had written many letters during his time in captivity and handed them to the guards, hoping that they would be given to the Turks for sending on to England. It is not known if any of these letters were handed over or whether they were simply destroyed. Whatever the case, this letter was all that was required for a dramatic rescue mission. In the early hours of the 17th of March 1916, led by the Duke of Westminster, a fleet of nine armoured cars, 20-odd other cars carrying extra fuel and provisions, together with ten Red Cross ambulances, set off with a couple of local guides across difficult terrain, and after a drive of about 12 hours, they located the camp. As the fleet of silver chariots appeared on the horizon, the prisoners must have thought they were hallucinating, but the Senussi guards began to flee. When the fleet reached the camp, the armoured cars fanned out in pursuit of the guards, gunning them down in the process, whilst the ambulances attended to the prisoners. One armoured car driver described the scene. Before we had halted, we were surrounded on all sides by a throng of living skeletons. Men, Englishmen, swarmed into my car and hugged and even kissed me. I have never before, or since, seen men in such a state. The ambulance crews began to distribute tins of food such as chicken, jam, condensed milk to the crew of the Tara. Prisoners no more. After a short time, they were helped into the ambulances and after a couple of days, they reached a hospital in Alexandria, although sadly, another crew member died there. By April 1916, after careful nursing and good food, most of the crew were back in England and ready for duty again. Once home, the rescued crew were entertained by their employers the London and North Western Railway Company, at the Coliseum Theatre, a London music hall. Captain Guatkin Williams took a cloakroom ticket, numbered U-35. Ironically, the same designation as the German submarine that had sunk them. The last word, however, goes to the Duke of Westminster, who was awarded the Distinguished Service Order for his leadership in the rescue. In May 1916, the crew were enjoying a banquet at the Euston Hotel. The Duke could not be present, but sent the following message. Mind you give my kindest greetings to all the men, and mind you give them snails for a remembrance. My next episode is about two tank commanders who fought at the Battle of Arras in 1940 and their efforts to escape the ever-advancing German army. Thank you for listening.